I, I, I noticed as I was sit, traveling around Granger County Rutledge this week that as you get to a certain age, you're supposed to utilize the pocket on your shirt. So I did that this morning. So I noticed that younger people don't seem to do that, but yeah. She likes utilitarian now. Anyway, uh, for some of you, this is our new member class 101 materials. I've put five or six of those out there. Some people have asked about um, our church covenant, things like that. Um, so it's in there. It's in that what's out front out there. So um, there's only a few. So if you're interested in church membership, this is one of the things. This is what the class usually would be. So we've been kind of tracking along with this. You're actually getting much more through this sermon series than you would get you know, in the actual class, and, and you would have to read most of this yourself. So we're covering a lot of it in, um, in this sermon series. But there's a section on baptism, the Lord's Supper, the whole thing about salvation last week, about the idea of membership and the church is in there at the beginning. So we've been kind of tracking through this, and, and so that's, that's what we're doing. That's out there. I'll have more out next week. Uh, had some printing and particularly stapling problems. So um, I have thoroughly, I think, destroyed two staplers. So we'll have to work that out this week. Um, the finance team's like, what? Okay, we can fix them. It'll be okay. Um, anyway, so if you're a guest, thank you for being here with us this morning. Welcome back if you're not a guest, been with us. But uh, this, as I said, this series um, covers kind of church membership, and so at the end of this series, you'll be able to fill out what you need to fill out to join the church if you want to do so, and so we started in week one showing how the Bible implies or expects, you could say, demands that a person who is born again, who is a Christian, uh, be a member of a local church, that the wording or concept of membership is actually a biblical concept, okay? And then we talked about what the church, what the church is and what it center, centers around, which is um, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the focal point of our faith. So when you hear uh, a pastor or a Christian say, I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you know, you hear that's a common just phrase put out there. That's because it is very important. It's central to what we believe. It's those historical events are the foundation of our faith in Jesus Christ. It's the validation of who he was and what he said he came to do. And so if you're not a Christian, this all hopefully will help you understand why we're so passionate about what we believe as well. And so maybe you might see God in a new way and actually want to come back because it's interesting and enjoyable to discover God at your own pace. No one pushing you or uh, just encouraging you and glad you're here no matter what you believe. But to be a member, we think there are certain things you should know before jo joining a church. You know, most churches, it's, it was the, usually the well, other church is open for those who, the doors are open for those who want to join. And so you'd walk down front if you want to join and pastor would stand up here and go, okay, this is Liz and Liz wants to join the church. Uh, does everybody like Liz? Is anybody got any dirt on Liz? It needs to be Okay, if not, everybody wants her to join, raise your hand. Most everybody would, and if you don't, okay, and nobody would, they'd just talk about her behind her back later. Um, and that's the way it usually went. I mean, that's, that was church membership. And then from there, you would figure out um, 
how the church works. What do we really, all of a sudden you'd come across something and go, we believe that here at this church? I didn't know that. You know, or what, so we don't, we like people to know up front what they're joining, what we believe, how things work, um, and fully know what you're jumping into, what's expected of you as a member, and what you can expect from us as a church. And so um, that's what, why this is so important to us. And this is the first time we've done this as like in the service as like a message series kind of thing. So today I'm going to talk about what the scripture tells us as a body, as a church, a body of believers are two things we should do as a church, and I'm going to focus more on the Lord's Supper than I am baptism. But we call them the ordinances of the church. There's two things, and they are the Lord's Supper. You may have heard it referred to as communion, depending on what background you come from, and baptism. So I want to start by going back to what is called the Last Supper, which helps us to understand the Lord's Supper as we take it. And so for those of you who, who don't have the Bible history um, the Lord's Supper it happens. Jesus enters the, the city of Jerusalem on the first day of the week before his death and made some bold statements and proclaimed to everyone there and the disciples that the temple was going to change. Some things were really coming that was going to change things. Then on Wednesday, you know, Judas arranges the whole deal to betray Jesus to the religious leaders. And then on Thursday, um, Jesus has arranged to have the special Passover meal um, send some guys into town and uh, to a certain house in a room. This man upstairs, who in the top of his house, has already prepared has prepared this room. And and so, as you know, there's two major events that take place during this meal that are usually talked about, and that's the washing of the disciples' feet. When and and then when Jesus gives us what's known as an ordinance of the church, which is known as the Lord's Supper or communion. So okay, so washing the disciples' feet was a valuable lesson for all of us to serve one another, that we're to serve each other and, and be servants. That was the, when you think about a, a disciple of Jesus, what that is, the, the number one description that Jesus used himself in the scriptures that you see in his words, the thing he said the most about a disciple of his is that they were a servant. Okay, that's, that's the number one description he gave. And so the washing of the disciples' feet was a lesson. He did not say about washing the disciples' feet, do this in remembrance of me, or this is something you should do often um, as you proclaim the gospel, okay? That as you do this, as you wash the disciples' feet, you're, as you wash each other's feet, you're proclaiming the gospel. He doesn't use that kind of language or anything that makes it an ordinance like he does about the Lord's Supper, okay? Okay. Um, Although I have done that as a lesson at like youth events, I can remember being at camps and camping out on the river over across Clinch Mountain and having a morning where I got up and had the kids sit around. They've been, you know, just camping and really filthy, y'all, and, and I'd wash their feet and go through this lesson. It's a great lesson to go through and an example um, to, to go through, but it is not an ordinance of the church, okay? But it, it is a required leadership principle when you talk about servanthood in our church is this servant leadership. Um, and so Jesus told them as Christians, you're to serve one another, taught them on the subject, and then we're told if you, that you're blessed if you live that way, that if you serve each other, you'll, you'll be blessed. And today we are going to really focus in on Lord's Supper, the ordinance part of, of this. So so just a warning up front, this may feel a little bit like a seminary class, and you're like, well, I've never been in a seminary class. Well, welcome, okay? This, this needs to be taught, 
okay? Uh, and we won't do the Lord's Supper today, but like I said, this will be something that uh, will be done in small groups this week. And so if you want to join one of those and, and have the Lord's Supper in a small group with one of the groups this week and you don't normally go to a small group, you're welcome to just see myself or, like I said, Rita <coughs> and or any of these people here on stage can direct you to a small group and, and help you to be a part of one of those and, and join in on it this week. Now, like I said, there there's those two ordinances um, that he commanded us to perform, okay? The baptism and the Lord's Supper, and I'm not going to focus on baptism, like I said, as much um, because it's amazing to me how many Christians feel like the Lord's Supper isn't really that important to go to or to participate in um, as though it's like it's optional. It, it is amazing how, how the perception is that, well, they're doing the Lord's Supper at church tonight. I, I might go, I might not. Oh, wait, Auburn's playing Tennessee. I'm just going to cancel everything in my life and watch that this afternoon. In fact, Marty, would you hurry up, right? It's amazing to me that born-again believers get there, but that's okay. Um, I'm being, now you're like, oh, he's just being legalistic now, you know, whatever, okay? Um, modern technology, you can record all that. Don't worry about it, okay? Um, anyway, um, but you, you wouldn't, think about this. If you were going to be baptized, would you go, oh, I think I'll just stay home and watch the game tonight? That's optional, right? Would you feel that way about it? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. You, you wouldn't. You wouldn't just not show up. So, so if that's an ordinance of the church that you be baptized as a believer after coming to Christ, after your conversion, by immersion, as these are things we believe, um, would you just? Why do we just skip out on the Lord's Supper when He said? As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me, that, that you should be there and you should do it. Like, that's a command. That's not like a, hey, if you ain't got nothing better to do, would you do this for me? When we're talking about Jesus, the one who died for us. Okay, I'm really laying on the guilt now, right? But, but we don't see the same emphasis on the Lord's Supper as we do baptism, and I'm not sure why. So my intention is to devote a little time to unfolding the meaning of the Lord's Supper for us from the New Testament, but understanding there there is a connection to the Old Testament, but first let me give you some, some biblical history about that, the, the historical origin of the Lord's Supper. Um, the, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, uh, all report um, uh, the Last Supper, well actually Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, the Last Supper that Jesus had um, with his disciples the night before he died, and each gives shows Jesus giving thanks and, and or blessing the bread and the cup and giving them to his disciples and, and saying that the bread is the new covenant in his blood, right? Um, and that his body was broken for them. In Luke twenty two nineteen, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Command, do this, okay? The Gospel of John doesn't re report the eating and drinking, but rather the teachings and actions that filled the event. Okay, the washing of the disciples' feet, the prayers, and teaching on what was to come is what you find in there. As far as we can tell from the earliest records, the church did exactly what Jesus told them to do. They would do this in remembrance of him. It was something that 
they just started doing. They reenacted the supper in remembrance of Jesus and his death. And Paul's letters are the earliest testimonies that we have. When you get into 1 Corinthians 11, like starting verse 20, he refers to the event in the life of the church called the Lord's Supper. It's called the Lord's Supper probably because it was instituted and ordained by the Lord Jesus. Okay, And because its very meaning celebrates the, the memory of the Lord's death, and there's a tag on about proclaiming his death until he comes, which implies the resurrection, because he can't come back if he's dead, right? So it, it, it's proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, okay? And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, let's look at verse 23 and 24. It says, "For I, this is Paul talking, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So here's Paul saying, I received this from who? The Lord. Okay? And, and so you might think, well, he wasn't a part of that original crew that was there, so how'd that happen, right? You remember he had an encounter with Jesus. He, he, Jesus knocked in his conversion. Paul, Paul had direct contact with Jesus, okay? So it, it's the Lord himself confirmed this for Paul, right? So the historical origin of the last of the Lord's Supper is that final supper that Jesus ate with his disciples the night before he was crucified, and he's talked about this with, with Paul, and he gives you what he, what he says, okay? And the actions and the meaning of it are rooted in what Jesus said and did on that last night. Jesus himself is the origin of the Lord's Supper. Okay, that's what we got to establish. He commanded that it be continued, and he is the focus and the center of it, which gets kind of skewed later on when you get into um, the... Con I won't get into too much of that. I will later. But the, you get into the whole control of it and... The, and it becoming a means to control the giving of grace by certain denominations and so forth, the focus gets off Jesus onto a priest or onto the sacraments themselves instead of just on Jesus and what that means. And it's not what Jesus intended. Um, he is the focus and content of it. The supper that Jesus instituted on the night he was betrayed was a new Passover meal, Okay is the way we would describe it, or we might say that the Passover was the Old Testament's Lord's Supper, okay? The reason the Lord instituted the Passover is so that pe the people of Israel would always remember and proclaim their redemption in Egypt. When the angel passed over and didn't take their children, right? If you remember that, um, if you go back to Exodus chapter 12, we see this in 1214, this day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Okay, so he's saying this is something you're to go ongoingly do, just like we should do the Lord's Supper, right? Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast, okay? And, and, and when you read that, you say, Throughout the generations, um, I'll address this in a minute, just, just to note this, as a statute forever, 
but there's some language coming later that Jesus uses to address that very issue, okay? Because some people think we have to um, keep the Sabbath, we have to do, keep the Passover, we have to do all the Old Testament stuff, whereas Jesus came to fulfill those things, not necessarily do away with, but it's a new way that we keep it, not the same way we do in the Old Testament, okay? Exodus 12, verse 25 and 27. It's just showing in the Old Testament what that Passover meal meant that now becomes what it is in the New Testament. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. The Lord, so the Lord's Supper was instituted for the same reason. Okay, when you look in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 through 26, okay, he's carrying on with what we were reading earlier. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, so the Old Testament looked back to the Exodus through the Passover meal. Okay, and the New Testament, that's us, we, we look back to the cross and resurrection of Jesus through the Lord's Supper. Okay, that's where it changed. They're, they're looking back to that Exodus and being saved from, from, the, from death in Egypt. And, and their exodus and being set free, and we're looking back to the cross as our time of being set free and our captivity to sin and, and that once-for-all redemption, not something that we would have to keep uh, sacrificing for. So as often as we eat this new Passover meal, we remember a greater exodus, which is what the New Testament teaches over and over, like in Colossians 1, 13 through 14, okay? It says this, I love this, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. You see that? It's just like being in Egypt and captivity and being brought out of that land to a new land. It says we're in this dominion, this land of darkness, and we were brought out to this new kingdom of the son he loves, Jesus, okay? In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, okay? So now we're redeemed by Jesus. So not saved by, by the blood of a sacrificed animal over our door, okay? Not saved by the sacrifices in the, in the temple in the Old Testament, right? Not animal sacrifice, but saved by the blood of Jesus, okay? An Old Testament law keeping Understand this, because this refers back to that keeping it for generations, you shall do this. Uh, some versions say perpetually. So there's people that say this is to go on forever. But it was for the people of Israel, for the children of Israel, for, for their generations under the Old Testament law. But now that Jesus has come, it says, Jesus himself says, that's now not what we do. This, there's a new covenant now, not that covenant. Okay? Keeping the Old Testament law did not permanently or perpetually save. Okay? 
It did not save for generations. Okay? But Jesus does. Okay? you got to understand that. Jesus does. And so that is where the Lord's Supper originated and has carried on since with much importance. And that's why we don't have to do the Passover meal anymore. That's why we don't celebrate in that way. Because it's not about that. It's about Jesus. All that was just foreshadowing that pointed to Jesus and what, what that would be in the New, Te- New Testament for us as, as believers in Jesus. They looked forward to Jesus, but all they had was their sacrifices at the time. We have Jesus, and he says, I've fulfilled all that. And so now that's all fulfilled in me. So Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Jesus is our Passover. Jesus is our redemption. Jesus is everything. Okay? And that's why the Bible is all about Jesus from the beginning of Genesis and He was there in the beginning and created all things. Let us make them in our image, right? Plurality in in that singular three in one, okay? All the way to Revelation, we see that it's all about Jesus, all the way through, okay? So to make it about Old Testament law, all of a sudden our focus gets on to our works and not on Jesus and his grace and his work for us. And we have to be careful of that, okay? So a little history might help us focus here. Remember, this is the seminary class part of it, so you have to go back and do all this history stuff. So on March 20th, 1531, in the Netherlands, a, a Baptist named Syke Snyder, okay? His proper name was Freerks, okay? I hope I'm saying that right. I'm slaughtering the Netherlands language, okay? But he was beheaded for being baptized as a believer instead of, acknowledging his infant baptism, okay? In the criminal sentence book of the court of Friesland, and all of you go, Friesland? That place exists? I'm moving there, right? You're like, Friesland, that sounds wonderful, okay? It's be an amusement park that McDonald's creates. Anyway, so in a sentence book of the court of Friesland, and it's probably not even pronounced that way, but that's just what I'm going with because I'm in Granger County, it reads... Syke Freerks, on this 20th of March, 1531, is condemned by the court to be executed. Condemned by the court. This is government, okay? So what we're going to see is, at one time, religion and government so intertwined that these things happen, and it was because of a control issue, is condemned to the court to be executed with the sword. His body shall be laid on the wheel and his head set upon a stake, because he has been rebaptized and perseveres in that baptism. That's what the court document says. Okay? So 20 years later, across the English Channel, from 1555 to 1558, the reign of bloody Queen Mary, right? You've heard all, all about her, or some of you know about the drink. You don't know about the, the reign of Queen Mary. Okay? Anyway, in, it says two. Y'all got to lighten up a little bit too, okay? I'm just um, and two two hundred eighty eight Protestant reformers were burned at the stake. Twenty one were clergymen. Fifty five were women. Four were bishops. One was an archbishop, okay, and four were children. It's the, the government doing this, okay? Why were were they? burned by the Roman Catholic queen. There was one central issue of why all those people were killed. 
and it was over the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Okay? Here are the words of John Charles Ryle to explain. It says, The doctrine in question was the real presence of the body and blood of Christ in the consecrated elements of bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. Did they or did they not believe that the body and blood of Christ were really, that is, corporately, corporally, literally, locally, and materially present under the forms of bread and wine after the words of consecration were pronounced. So this is saying at the hands of these priests, they're consecrating it and literally turning it into the blood of Christ. It is actually becoming the body, his flesh, okay? They're saying, do they or do they not believe that? Because that's what the Catholic Church believed, right? Did they or did they not believe that the real body of Christ, which was born of the Virgin Mary, was present on the so-called altar so soon as the mystical words had passed the lips of the priest? Did they or did they not? That was the simple question. If they did not believe and admitted it, they were burned. If they didn't believe that at the words of this Catholic priest that it became the body and blood of Christ, they would be killed for it. And I, and I mentioned these two facts. The martyrdom of those who held only believers shall be baptized and the martyrdom of those who denied the physical body of Christ were really there, literally there in the form of the of bread and the fruit of the vine to show that there was once a time when the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper carried meanings that were very important. The meanings of those things were so important they were worth dying for. And we can't even miss our favorite show. And here's the other side of it. Some thought it was so important that it was worth killing for. That's how important. Okay? Now, one of the happy things about being a Baptist, okay, given the volatile days of controversy around the world, is that during the history of our existence, we've never been on the killing side of that transaction. Okay? So I am happy about that. Okay? Even though we could have just as easily been caught up in that if we had been there during those times when this was going on, okay? Perhaps um, I should just give a brief word about why so much is at stake. Uh, with regard to baptism, one crucial issue in the 16th century was the relationship between church and state, okay? They were so interwoven, these two things, church and state, religion, and this relates a lot to you guys are going, oh gosh, we're think about today and what we're going through and the pros and cons of and all those things and you know you're going well Marty you think we shouldn't pray in schools and blah blah and all this okay that's not the debate I'm getting into but there is a level at which when religion takes over the government what what can happen okay and if we get away from the Bible do I that's a whole nother discussion okay I can't I don't even have time to get there okay so let's just move on with this but they, they were so interwoven back during all this going on that anything which threatened to distinguish between church and population, okay, also threatened secular authority over that population, okay, which I think we all get. If baptism was a voluntary act of a believer, you see where this is going? 
See, if we can if we can infant baptize people, then we keep them in the church and we keep authority over all those people. Because we just look at them and go, well, you're, you know, we keep them all Catholic. Catholics run the, the church and government are intertwined. We run everything, so everybody's Catholic. We keep everybody Catholic so that we control everything, right? But if it's voluntary, now I may or may not have the same influence over those people because they may not choose to acknowledge the church, the Catholic church, right? If baptism was voluntary, then church would become a free and voluntary assembly. And that would compromise the rule of secular religious authority over the population as a whole, or secular authority at that time, the government. So when Felix, Felix Manns was drowned in 1527 in Switzerland for being a Baptist, the court record said, they do not allow infant baptism, okay? In this way, they will put an end to secular authority. That's, that's what they said. In other words, being a Baptist was a capital crime because it was seen as treason against secular authority. So with regards to the Lord's Supper, which was just equally as threatening, the issue was more directly theological, but also political. Okay? Would, it becomes down to this issue of, would England be a Catholic or Protestant nation? That became the, the issue. Both used the sword against each other. So when the Catholics ruled, any serious attack on Roman Catholic doctrine was, attack on, was an attack on the crown. That's how they saw it. And there was no more serious attack than rejection of the heart of the Catholic Mass. Okay? The heart of the, of the Mass was the real, physical, material presence of the incarnate body of Christ in the form of the bread and the fruit of the cup. Okay? Which takes me back in my mind, now I realize... As I've studied this, I've never really caught this before until I, I was going back through and I, I did this, talked about this back in 2011, I think it was, in 13, in our church, talking about this stuff. But it just hit me when I was, when I was studying this week that um, I was at a wedding of one of my friends, a good friend of mine, and he was, he was marrying a girl who's Catholic, so he became Catholic, married her, and I remember being in the, in the, back room I was one of the groomsmen and I'm back there and back then I didn't I didn't really understand a lot of stuff I was like um, all I knew is I was a part of a traditional Baptist church and on the wall was this church covenant and the very last thing on that covenant said that we weren't to drink alcohol okay so I'm sitting there and Nikki and I discussed we were sitting there we're going through this rehearsal and they wanted the groomsmen and bridesmaids to get up and we'd all go through together so it'd look uniform and lead the rest of the congregation first to go up and and take communion during the wedding because it's central to everything they do and so as we're practicing we walk through and go back and sit down it was like what if they're going to use real wine because back then i did not you know i'm just going i'm not supposed to do that i didn't understand a whole lot about and that's a whole nother discussion okay this is not a alcohol should you shouldn't you drink sermon okay we can talk about that separately if you want to and and what i believe about that um which i got to do thoroughly at chaplain training last week, as I got a lot of questions about that, um, and so um, I'm I'm back in the back room right before the wedding, and the the there's these nuns they're putting the big whatever that thing is that goes on the priest's head and his stuff, and he's holding this big family size Bible that if you ever gotten married in here in Granger County, you got one from Eddie Chevrolet, 
right? It's got the big Bible, um, and he's standing there. And I'm, and in my mind, I'm like, I don't want to offend anybody. I don't, I just, I don't understand fully. So I go up to the priest, and I'm like, hey, it's not a big deal. Um, I, I'm just not sure where I'm at with this. And so I just had a question: Is do you use real wine in the, in the communion part? And he's like, yes, we do. And he steps forward, and that Bible hits me right here, and I'm like. Well, hey, it's not a big deal. It's okay. Um, I'm just so that it, I don't mess everything up. When I come through, I'm just going to pass through because I'm just not sure where I am with all that. And and after looking, when you understand this, I understand why this was so offensive to him and what the issue was, how central this this is worth killing over at one time. Okay. So I'm like, I'm just going to pass through. And he looks at me, and I'm like, it's not a big deal. And, the, and the thing, all of a sudden, the nuns like they let go and they like step back. And they're like backing up, and I'm like, uh-oh, something serious is going on here. And he like starts putting his finger on my chest, like, no, it is a big deal. Do you not understand? And he starts giving me all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, okay. And so then my friend runs over the groom, and he's like, what's going on? What's going on? Is everything okay? And I'm like, dude, it's okay. I'm fine. And I just walked off because I was like, I, this is wedding. I'm like, but I didn't understand why that was so important to that priest at that time. But when you understand this, I understand why. That was so important to him. And now, why it's so important to me. Okay? So, anyway, that's, that's a whole other issue. But the, the heart of the Mass was this real physical, material presence of the incarnate body of Christ in the form of the bread and the wine or fruit of the cup, as I like to call it. This was essential, not peripheral, because it's the consecrating words of the priest. It's, a, it's an insult to that priest. It's the consecrating words of the priest. Another crucial sacrifice happened with this body. This is what the Protestant reformers saw in this. And this is what they believe undermined the gospel of the crucified Christ once for all for our sins when you're, when you're bringing the body and the blood back and saying it's literally there and, and you're, you're doing this sacrifice all over again. And this is what they... They believe, and, and we believe here that Scripture teaches that infant baptism undermines the gospel of Jesus who died for our sins, okay? You can't become a Christian because your parents baptize you as a baby when you don't have any idea what you're doing, and they just, they do this infant baptism thing. That's not a, that's, that's not a God calling you, you choosing and receiving the gift of Jesus Christ, that's that's just declaring you are, and that's the works of a priest of your parents, not the works of Jesus in your life. Okay? So so for us, you can't become a Christian because your parents baptized you as a baby. So, listening to Bishop J.C. Ryle express the Protestant conviction, he goes on to say, grant for a moment that the Lord's Supper is a sacrifice and not a sacrament. You spoil the blessed doctrine of Christ's finished work when he died on the cross. A sacrifice that needs to be repeated is not a perfect and complete thing. You understand that? But if you read Hebrews, you understand it, it's, that it's all about not having to do those things over and over again, but now it's complete in Jesus. You spoil the priestly office of Christ. If there are priests that can offer an acceptable sacrifice to God besides him, Jesus, the great high priest is robbed of his glory. 
you overthrow the true doctrine of Christ's human nature. If the body born of the Virgin Mary can be in more places than one at the same time, it is not a body, body like our own. And Jesus was not the last and Jesus was not the last Adam in the true in the truth of our nature. Okay? If that can happen, then he wasn't the last Adam and he wasn't he didn't have a body like ours, that he could be a sinless sacrifice and 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 go through what we went through. That that can't all be. Okay? So as we talk about the doctrine of the Lord's Supper, let nobody say, What's the big deal? Okay? Rather, we need to humble ourselves and realize that while we enjoy the freedoms that we do in the country that we live in, um, and nobody here is being burned at the stake or beheaded over these religious reasons, okay, we may also have lost a sense of weight under what Christ gave us as the ordinances of his church because of our freedom. We have to admit that if there was an aged, if that their age of that was marked by brutality over these ordinances, ours is probably marked by superficiality. They may have weighed things differently than we would, but it may be that we've lost the capacity to feel the the heavy truth of all this. Now, I want to go to the heart of what Jesus meant by this is my body and this is the cup so that you understand what we believe about those things versus it literally becoming that, okay? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. When you look at 1 Corinthians 11 and Luke 22, this is the blood of the covenant, Matthew 26, Mark 14. Um, But let's read again 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26, where Paul passes on the tradition he received from the Lord. Okay, 1 Corinthians 11 says... For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay? I was trying to get an example here real quick, but um, I probably won't be able to do this. Anyway, um, but first, I'll give you four reasons. Sorry, my mind's in two different places trying to do two things at one time, and it doesn't work. Good thing I'm not chewing gum. Uh, for I give you, I'll give you four reasons why this is my body does not mean the physical body of the incarnate Christ materializes right there under the bread, in the bread, through the priestly consecration. The bread does not literally become the body of Christ. Okay, Then I'll give you three positive meanings of this is my body and this is my blood. First, okay, why doesn't it mean this is my, why, why does it mean this is my body? Why doesn't that mean it becomes the physical incarnate body of Jesus? Okay, Because there's a natural understanding of what somebody means when they say this is my body it, through representation. Okay, the most natural way to understand someone who picks up something and says, this is my body, is that it means it represents their body, not that it actually turns into their body. Okay, and I was trying to pull up a picture of my family so that you'd understand this, because I could 
pull out my phone and pull it, pick up and, a picture of my family and go, this is my family, right? That does not mean that my phone literally becomes my family, right? Or if I had a physical picture of my kids and said, these are my kids, you wouldn't go, there's Marty's kids. I'm going to go talk to them, right? Because it does, it's a representation of what is meant. It's not that it literally becomes those things, okay? We know that, that that's what that means. It doesn't mean that the picture has mystically or physically turned into my family, okay? Or we point to an actor on a stage in a Civil War reenactment and, and say, that's Abraham Lincoln, okay? We don't mean that the actor literally became physically in the incarnate Abraham Lincoln, okay? Or we read the Chronicles, Chronicles of Narnia and point to Aslan and say, that's Jesus Christ. We don't mean... Not that Aslan, right? Um, we 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 don't mean that that is that lion in the movie is literally Jesus. It's just a representation, okay? And so this is the most natural way to understand the words of Jesus when he says, "This is my body. This represents my body." It's very telling in the modern Catholic catechism. The word "represents" is used, but it's regularly hyphenated. The R-E is hyphenated from presents so that it says re-presents. Okay? It's a twist. Okay? The implication seems to be there is a real physical re-presenting of Christ. His physical body is presented again. And I think that is an unnatural way of reading those words. It's a change in the interpretation. Okay? So, the second reason here is the parallelism between bread and body or cup and the new covenant okay if the words this bread is my body was intended to mean this bread is turned into my physical body then we would expect the same meaning to hold about the cup okay in verse 25 he says this cup is the new covenant in my blood he doesn't say this is my blood okay Hear the words, this cup is the new covenant, are not forced to mean the cup has turned into a covenant. Okay? Everyone agrees that the cup stands for its contents and the blood secures or purchases or guarantees the blessings of the covenant. Okay? So if we're willing to let this cup is the new covenant mean something more natural than the cup has turned into the new covenant, shouldn't we be willing to let the bread has become my body. You know, the bread is my body means something more natural than the bread has turned into my body. Okay? You're you're it's it's not matching up with what's being said. You're you're contradicting yourself if you think it is saying it literally becomes both of those things. Okay? Then we can go on to the fact that Jesus explains himself that he is figuratively speaking. Okay? Ta da. Okay. I wish I had something to just like uncover and go, look, Jesus said it himself, right? John 6, 63. If you go to that, it's a very long chapter. Yes, John 6 goes to like verse 71, I think. Very long chapter, but John 6, 63 points away from seeing Christ's physical body in the bread of the Lord's Supper, okay? Those who believe that Christ's physical body is there materially in the form of the bread often base this on John 6, 48 through 63, but there Jesus foreshadows the meaning of the Lord's Supper and says publicly in the synagogue in verse 48, okay? 
He says, I am the bread of life. Okay? So this is where this gets really mixed up. Okay? Then he talks about eating this bread. Okay? He says in verse 51, if you go down to verse 51, it says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. I'm really challenging the tech team up there. I gave him just a whole bunch of verses and skipping around on them. Okay? It says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay? So this sounds shocking. And the Jews question, right, how he might give this flesh to eat. They're like, well, how in the world is that going to happen? Okay, verse, which we see in verse 52. They're like questioning, like, how in the world are we going to do that? So Jesus responds in verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you, right? So then he realizes that his disciples are confused. He's like, okay, they're not getting this, okay? You're totally not getting this. And so in verse 60, he says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? In other words, we're kind of dumb. We don't get it, Jesus, okay? So Jesus says to them that the key to interpreting verse 63 to help them avoid the very mistake that the synagogue was was making is it is the Spirit, okay, verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, okay? Okay? So I take this to mean don't get hung up to the references to my flesh and my blood and and being eaten, okay, and being blood being drunk. Don't don't get hung up on on body and flesh and blood, okay? He says I'm he's literally saying I'm speaking figuratively. I'm referring to a spiritual action more than a physical action. So verse 63 protects the disciples from the very misunderstanding that I'm warning against this morning for us. Okay? That's what he's doing here. And so Jesus says that eating and drinking are spiritual acts. Okay, if you look at John 6, 35, fourth and final reason for this is my body not being literal. Okay? Verse 35 points us to the the literal the positive meaning of eating and drinking Christ. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Okay, when you understand this and you get this, you you understand it's figurative, not literal. Okay, here he gives himself to us to be received by eating and drinking. Okay, is what he says. Hunger and thirst will be quenched by Christ. And so what is this eating and drinking? Okay. He says what it is. It's coming to Christ and believing in Christ. It's a spiritual act, not a physical act. He says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. So if I go to Jesus, I won't hunger. You, you, you see in this? And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So if I believe in Jesus, not that I'm literally drinking his blood or eating his flesh, If I believe in Jesus, then I shall never thirst. 
the eating and drinking refer to spiritual acts of the soul drawing near to Christ and receiving him and trusting him and having the hunger and thirst of our souls being satisfied. Now, now here's a place to ask this question. Do believers receive an extra or special grace by eating the Lord's Supper this way? And this, this physical physical versus spiritual, okay? And I believe God has provided many means to sustain and strengthen the soul of his people by faith, which are which is grace. Okay? May not be saving grace, but it's grace. Okay? Each means a means that is a gracious gift from God, giving sustaining grace to our needy souls and hearts. So yes, the Lord's Supper is one of those, a very precious and important one. But I do not see grace given through the Lord's Supper um, as essentially different from grace He gives by other means. Okay, Grace strengthens my soul by faith when I meditate on the Scriptures. That's what Psalm 1-3 says. Grace strengthens my soul by faith when I see saints love each other sacrificially by the power of Christ. Matthew 5.16 Grace strengthens my soul by faith when I see the heavens declaring the glory of God. Psalm 19.1 Grace strengthens my soul by faith when I fulfill my ministry with God's help. 1 Timothy 3.13 God's grace strengthens my soul by faith when fellow Christians pray for me. Ephesians 4.16 Grace strengthens my soul by faith when a brother or sister exhorts me or admonishes me or hears my confession of sin and comforts me. Hebrews 3.12 and 13 And fresh grace strengthens my soul by faith when I remember Jesus in the eating of the bread and drinking of the cup to feast on His risen life. You understand that? It is not a saving grace, per se. It's why we don't baptize babies or take communion to be sacraments that impart saving grace literally regardless of a relationship with Christ. Okay? So if the words, this is my body, does not mean the physical body of Jesus materializes in this bread, what then is the positive meaning of this is my body, this is my blood? Okay, it's proclamation. Okay, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six says that as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is my body means by this representation of my broken body, you proclaim my death for sinners until I come. You proclaim the gospel, the bread and the cup Proclaim the saving death and resurrection of Christ. They're, they're again implied by He's coming again. Intentionally worded with that in mind. So it's proclamation and it's remembrance. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four and 25. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my body. Means let the representation of the, of the body and the blood remind you of me. Is what Jesus would say. First the death of Christ is proclaimed, and then by this proclamation, we're reminded of Christ. Remember me, Jesus says, 
sitting with you in fellowship. Remember me being betrayed and, and knowing all along it was going to happen. Remember me giving thanks to God who ordained it all. Remember me breaking bread, the bread just as I willingly gave my own body to be broken. Remember me shedding my blood for you so that you might live because I died for you. Remember me suffering to obtain for you the, bless, the blessings of the new covenant. Remember me promising that I would drink this fruit of the vine new in the kingdom with you. Right? Let them, that's Mark 14, 25. Let the memories of me and all the fullness of my love and, and power flood your soul at the table of the Lord's Supper. Which leads to the, this last meaning of these words. This is my body. It's a feast by faith, as I've already talked about. John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. This is my body. Means as you eat this bread and drink this cup, Come to me and believe in me. That's what this is re reminding us of. That is, sit with me in the, at the table of the Lord's Supper, trusting me with your life, trusting me with your eternal salvation, to be your life-sustaining force. Let the proclamation of my death and remembrance of all that I am for you Awaken your faith to draw nearer and nearer to Christ. Into deeper communion with Him. This is my body and this is my blood. Mean eat spiritually. That is, eat by faith. Feed your soul on all that Jesus is. Nourish your heart on the blessings that Jesus bought for you through the, the body and blood. You look at 1 Corinthians 10.16. That's what faith is. Faith is in Him is being satisfied in all that Jesus is, in all that God has provided Christ to be for us. Christ has given us the Lord's Supper to feed spiritually with Himself. Okay? So they represent, they are symbols of the body and the blood of Christ. They aren't literally it. It's just symbols to remind us and we feast spiritually. So even though I think it's dangerously wrong to say that the bread and blood turn into the physical incarnate body of Jesus, nevertheless, I'm not saying that what happens in the Lord's Supper is mere intellectual recalling of facts. It's a spiritual act, okay? The Supper is very, very important, and it proclaims and it helps us remember. And faith comes by hearing and seeing and tasting the proclamation. Faith is a supernatural, it's a, it's a spiritual feasting on the risen living Christ, so that all that God is for us in Him satisfies our soul, sweetens our love for Him, and breaks the power of sin in our lives. Um, so let's love the Lord's Supper and baptism together as believers. It's important for us. And it, it just, it, it's a way for us together to remember that we are the body of Christ together. I don't believe you should take the Lord's Supper by yourself. It, it talks about the body, and as we come together, you read, read those accounts of the Lord's Supper. It's something that we do as believers together. Okay? So join us in a small group this week in obedience to Christ and feast with us symbolically on Christ through faith. Let's pray together. Of course, a big thing for me this morning is this 
just say to you, if you don't know Christ, if you don't know the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, it, here's how, how you get that. It's, it's, the same, it's as we were talking about. It's, it's faith. It's, it's by grace through faith in, in Jesus Christ. Okay? It's a free gift from God. You don't, have to, you don't have to earn it. There's nothing you could have done that's so bad He can't save you from it. You can't, your sin is not greater than the power of Christ. And so right now you just say, hey, this is where I'm at. I'm, I'm, I'm under law. I'm under my sin. I'm trying to be Lord of my own life. I'm trying to do things my way or I'm just running from God or I don't believe. But, but I see Jesus and I now understand and I feel Him pulling me and drawing me to Himself and I want Him to be Lord of my life. I don't want freedom from this land of darkness, this dominion of darkness and I want into His marvelous light and so I turn to Jesus and I just surrender to that. I want Him to be Lord of my life. That's what repentance is. It's just turning from yourself and sin and turning to Jesus and saying, I trust Him and His work on the cross in my place for my sin and in His resurrection. I just trust that that work was enough for me. And so I'm going to live under that grace. And so that's the conversation you have with God right now is to say, I, I, I repent. I, I'm sorry for my sin. God, I see how it hurts me, how it hurts you, how it hurts other people. And would you help me to walk in the light of your son, Jesus? And if that's you and you're turning to Christ, would you come see me after the service or contact me somehow so we can celebrate you, with you and help you in your new journey and following Christ. You're not, you're, you become a part of the family. We just want to help you in your next steps. For the rest of us, God, I pray that we would not take this lightly. That we would not create idols in our lives with other things. That we would be wholeheartedly sold out to you, Father. To your Son, Jesus. Father, would you just help us to understand how important these things are as we go back to the Lord's Supper. As we go back to that last supper where Jesus said these words, just take us back to what you meant. Would we just obey the Scriptures? Would we obey your Son Jesus? Would we be sold out to Him more than anything? Father, may it, be, it be just be all about Jesus. He is our great high priest. Father, we're thankful that we have a great high priest that is above it all. That we don't have to rely on any men for anything. That it's all provided through your son Jesus. That we have direct access to you through Jesus. That all that grace flows straight from you through Jesus. So Father, thank you for your work. And may we celebrate that. May we feast on that as we worship. So thank you, Father. We pray all this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with us and sing?